0: Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. We're coming up on the two-week warning for Election Day 2020 with control of the White House and the United States Senate in the balance. But in truth, the voting is already well underway. Between mail-in, absentee balloting, and early voting in person, millions of ballots will have already been cast by the time November 3rd rolls around. October surprises have been weaponized and gamed out to an extent that the daily revelations are so numbing, I wonder who's really paying attention, if any of it even matters. That's why I'm so pleased to be joined today by a political analyst I greatly admire to help break it all down. Henry Olson is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a columnist for the Washington Post. His books, The Four Faces of the Republican Party, and the working class Republican are really key to understanding the makeup of national Republican coalitions in the modern era, and I commend them to you. His Twitter feed, at Henry Olson EPPC, is a must follow on any election night for real time analysis of the county by county and state by state returns. I never miss it, and I'm really honored to be joined by him today. Henry Olson, welcome to 14th and G.
1: Thanks for having me, Dean. Well, first
0: things first, Joe Biden's national lead in the Real Clear Politics average sits at 9.2 points. It's a fairly stable lead he's enjoyed since the summer. Uh, He's got similar margins from the mid-single to double digits in battleground states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. On the other hand, Hillary Clinton enjoyed similar polling advantages through the middle of October 2016. I suppose a blue wave, a comfortable win by Joe Biden, would be about the only thing that's gone as expected in 2020. But Henry, does President Trump have a shot at
1: re-election? He's got a shot, but honestly, not a very good one. He has been somebody who has been upside down in his job approval ratings throughout his presidency. That's his store. He's never broken 50% job approval once. That's a record low for modern presidents. He can win the Electoral College, but to do that, he needs to have something approaching a 47% job approval rating and maybe a net negative of three to four points in the job approval. He's not there, and he has only been there for a couple of days throughout his presidency. He was trending in that direction before the first debate, and then his boorish performance reminded the soft Trump supporter, the person who wavers back and forth, why they don't like him. And since then, Biden's lead has lengthened into the range that you're talking about. So it's theoretically possible, but it's hard to see it actually happening, given the behavior that the president is displaying in the campaign.
0: Well, you have been pretty tough on the president in your column, most recently comparing his campaign to the latter days of Jeb exclamation point. You know, from the Bob Woodward book rollout after Labor Day to the New York Times story on the president's taxes, the death of Justice Ginsburg and the ensuing nomination battle, the president's debate performance you referenced and his COVID diagnosis. All of this in the context of a global pandemic the president's opponents, I would say, abetted by the media, have seemed largely in control of these news cycles. Do you see it that way? And, and how is this series of shockwave events influencing voters?
1: The president had a marvelous opportunity to break through his ceiling of support with the COVID pandemic. Virtually every leader in the world has managed to display a mixture of empathy and pragmatism and is riding significant increases in their poll rating. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is set to win a smashing re-election on Saturday in her country's elections, and the same is true of provincial leaders north of the border, right or left. It doesn't matter what your ideology is. The president has not hit that sweet spot of empathy and pragmatism, and as a result, He is almost the only world leader who has seen his ratings go backwards rather than forwards, and that is one of the largest reasons why he is heavily favored to lose. The other events have really just played into the existing stereotypes that people had already baked in, whether Trump paid taxes, that his supporters didn't care whether he did or didn't, and his opponents were sure he had built the tax man of millions if not billions of dollars. The COVID diagnosis could have been an opportunity for him, but again this is a guy who knows one speed, one note, and isn't agile enough to adapt to changing circumstances and this year has thrown a lot of changing circumstances that he has not adapted well to.
0: Well so Henry it's election night, Uh, the polls are closing, and as I said your Twitter feed is one of my go-to's Where and what will you be watching as the early bellwethers of which way the election is going? And with so many ballots in the mail, will election night returns be giving a real indication of the ultimate winner?
1: They probably will, in part because some of the earlier states are states that have extensive experience with processing mail-in ballots. Florida, Ohio, and North Carolina are three of the early battleground states that will report before eight o'clock they all have extensive experience with early voting and should unlike states like pennsylvania and wisconsin which do not uh, be able to handle the large numbers of ballots that come in what i'll be looking at uh in the six o'clock hour is the president's margins in areas of indiana and kentucky they're the first states that report and these are states that the president will carry But in 2016, one of the early signs that things were not going as the Clinton campaign expected was huge swings in early returns in rural counties in those states. I was tweeting about that at the time. I'll be comparing those margins. I'll be looking at that again and seeing whether or not the president is losing ground in these areas that are gonna go for him, but he has to win them with tremendous margins in order to prevail. But then the most important things I'll be looking for are the early vote totals in Florida, Ohio, and North Carolina. How large are they as a share of 2016 turnout? And how much of a margin will they return for Joe Biden? We know that mail-in ballots will return large margins for him because his supporters say they'll vote by mail, whereas the president say they'll vote on election day. So if you take a look and you can see how many votes are reported early and what Biden's margin is, you can do some rough calculations and estimate whether there's enough election day votes out there for the president to make up that ground. I won't be calling the election in part because Twitter is uh, going to be policing people who are trying to call the election, but I will send clear signals (laughs) to which direction things are going in, figuring out the words that will keep my from being blocked and uh, those who have ears to hear will hear. But that's what I'm looking for. We'll know by the time Pennsylvania closes or certainly by the 8.30 hour, there'll be enough votes in those first three states that we'll have a very clear signal on whether it's doable or not for President Trump.
0: Henry, I'm curious, that uh, those rural counties in Indiana, Kentucky, they're not only the, the, the first polls to close, but was that an indication for you of the of, of the cracks in the blue wall that extended you know that that county by county map of the united states of obama won counties that flipped to trump in 2016 it's like an arc up through the shenandoah valley and, and across uh wisconsin uh into michigan and, and even minnesota are, are those early indicators of whether or not biden can restore the blue wall and, and trump
1: can keep it cracked Most of those counties are red counties. The only question is the hue of red. There are some counties that were Obama-Trump counties. Vigo County in Indiana is a county that has voted for the winner in each of the presidential elections going back to the 1950s. So that's the key bellwether county to look at in Indiana. Uh, it's not a rural county. It's a small uh, urban county. Elliott County in Kentucky is one that had never voted for a Republican since it was incorporated in 1868 until it voted for President Trump. Again, uh, it's cold country, so I wouldn't expect him to lose it, but I'll be looking at the margins there. Those will be two counties that are early indicators of the Obama-Trump vote that I, if they are in, I will be reporting on.
0: Come November 3rd, as either a lame duck president with a second term or or denied reelection, the race is going to be on for the successor to President Trump. You had a phenomenal essay this week at AmericanCompass.org titled The Three Deadly Sins of the Right, Uh, those being market fundamentalism, snobbery, and hubris. And I think it's fair to say you attribute a lot of these sins as a misreading of Ronald Reagan, both in how he spoke and how he governed. In the context of ascendant populism, party realignment, and either a Trump win or defeat, what do you see as next for the Republican Party? And who do you see as the leading contenders to pick up that uh, populist banner?
1: Well, I think that the question of what is next for the Republican Party is going to be the big question whether Trump wins or loses. Of course, if Trump wins, it'll be shaded by the president's second term, but if he loses, as the polls suggest, it'll be starting in earnest on November 4th. I think there are different wings of the party. I think there are wings that would like, whether they're aware of it or not, for the party to go back to what it was, which is basically a civil war between the uh, Movement Conservative, and the Moderate Conservative, both of which are centered on a business-friendly, small government view of the federal government that I believe is out of step with where Americans have been and certainly are today. Uh, The people who are vying for what I call the young reformers uh, wing of the party, which would be one that incorporates populism into a, a Republican party, that is uh, broader than simply populism, are people like Senator Marco Rubio, people like Senator Tom Cotton, or Senator Josh Hawley. Each of them have stoked populist concerns uh, while retaining large degrees of orthodoxy, which is exactly where you want to be. You want to be somebody who's new, but not too new, because you want to be able to unite all wings of the Republican Party. But one thing we know about American politics is that the what tends to remain relatively stable in the sense of what people are concerned about and how they view changes in events. The who changes a lot as people vie to become favorites of those different factions of voters. So I would be surprised if three years from now, we're only talking about those three men. I do think that there is a group that I call the Imperial Successors—people who will try and run as more Trump, less tweet—and that would be the wing that the Vice President would be, Vice President Pence, would be trying to fill. And any of the Skians of uh, or skians of Donald Trump, you know, Don Jr., Eric, or maybe even Ivanka—you know, their brand is tied up with the president, so they would offer their own distinctive brands of. Trump-style populism, but I suspect the energy will be with the young reformers with respect to the populist wing of the Republican Party.
0: Your your book, The Four Faces of the Republican Party, is uh, still something I, I think of as a matrix uh, in, in- terms of breaking down the constituencies that form a national coalition for Republicans. You, you wrote that in the context of the 2016 primaries and rejected the establishment versus insurgent sort of breakdown as, as overly simplistic. It, it, Post-Trump, is, are the four faces still relevant to how you analyze a, a Republican national coalition?
1: The four faces still exist. The thing is, they now compete with a uh, ill-defined fifth face, which is to say these Trump-style populists. But uh, the four faces, for for, uh, the listeners who haven't uh, read the book, are secular, very conservative voters who are your typical heritage foundation folks, uh, less taxes, less government uh, across the board, religious, very conservative voters who are your Social conservatives, the people who prioritize issues of abortion and same sex marriage in the past, and increasingly of focusing on religious liberty as they feel under threat. Somewhat conservatives, which would be kind of your Republican establishment voter, Rick Large, the sort of person who doesn't want. Uh, to go to the map, to cut government, but doesn't want to dramatically expand it, tends to be favorable to business. This is the Mitch McConnell wing of the party. And then in national elections, they don't elect many people to Congress, but self-described moderates do vote. And they're actually pretty important in places in the Northeast and the Pacific West, places that don't elect Republicans to Congress, but do send delegates to the National Convention. And these people are what you would expect moderates to be they do not uh, they sit between the left and the right they particularly do not like the religious right uh, the fifth face is the people who uh, respond to trumping messages on immigration on nationalism on trade there's not a clearly defined leader there because they came into being with president trump the Four faces worked perfectly when you looked at who emerged as Trump's competitors, that Ted Cruz united the religious conservative and the secular very conservative, uh, and that's why he was able to emerge. But the fact is he did so on terms that made him unacceptable to the somewhat conservative or the moderate, which is the classic problem that the candidate from the right has. And he lost primaries in exactly the places that are always the waterloos of that faction's candidates he lost in the most states in the midwest and he got annihilated in the northeast which still does send a lot of delegates even as they don't send many republicans to congress john Kasich played the typical moderate card he played to the 15 percent of the electorate in the republican party that is the moderates they're strong in places like new hampshire so he parlayed a weak second place finish in new hampshire and a bunch of stubbornness to staying in the race where he continued to draw from the party's left flank while being unappealing to the party's right flank and right of center core
0: well henry uh, the senate majority is going to be just as important to the future direction of the country as control of the white house Uh, republicans currently hold a 53 to 47 advantage democrats net a three-seat gain Either Vice President Pence or Vice President Harris would tip the balance of control to their respective parties. Two questions. What are the key races you're watching for Senate control? And do you envision any scenario in which one party wins the White House and the other party controls a Senate majority?
1: So first, the key state that I'm looking at is North Carolina. That is demographically the cusp state that When you rank states that Republicans hold, which are vulnerable, this is the state that is most Republican uh, or least Republican of the states that Democrats are challenging. So if they can't take North Carolina, they can't take, it's almost certain that they're not going to take any of the states that are more Republican than that. So that's the key state that I'm looking at. Of course, Democrat Cal Cunningham has been ahead in the polls, but um, polls in North Carolina have traditionally understated Republican support slightly. And so it wouldn't surprise me if that race were to get a little bit closer and, tell it, Tom, tell us the incumbent might be able to prevail. The key thing that I'm looking at is roughly if the president loses the popular vote by four points or less, that probably means he'll take North Carolina, and that probably means Tom Tillis will be reelected. So uh, that's the factors that I'm looking at. And that is what opens up the possibility of somebody winning, re-elect- winning the election, Joe Biden, but not controlling the Senate, is that if he wins narrowly, it's conceivable that Republicans will retain a 51 to 49 control of the Senate. But anything on a national margin where he wins by four to five points or more, and it's very difficult to see how the Democrats won't take at least nominal control of the Senate.
0: Well, you are a master prognosticator, and I I welcome your predictions for the Electoral College uh, gains and losses you foresee in the Senate and House, but I'm also curious With all of our politics seemingly on a knife's edge and and our democracy a bit frayed, what is your nightmare scenario for this election? What's keeping you up at night as you think ahead to November
1: 3rd? There are a number of nightmare scenarios that concern me. Uh, Nightmare scenario number one is a close election where because Republican votes vote on election day, it's clear from the polls that Trump voters are highly likely to vote on election day and not early, uh, where the determination of the Senate will rest on provisional and mail ballots that won't be counted until after election day. It's entirely possible in a close election that the president will have an electoral college majority with millions, tens of millions of votes left to count. At that time, I would be worried that the president will declare victory peremptorily and that the election will be decided really by the courts rather than by the people as lawsuit after lawsuit is brought to try and uh, determine which ballots are legally able to be counted. The other nightmare scenario is that if it's not that close, if it's clear that the president is going to win re-election, that um, I think it's highly likely that violence will break out in uh, many American cities as the progressive extreme w- finds it unable to, particularly given the likelihood that it would be a shock re-election, uh, finds uh, President Trump's re-election to be too unacceptable to contemplate. Those are the two nightmare scenarios that I am worried about. Well, let's hope neither come to pass. <laughs> exactly.
0: Henry Olson, I will be refreshing your Twitter feed uh, all night on November 3rd. I really appreciate you joining me today on
1: 14th and G. Thank you for having me, Dean.